This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Yes, Dr. Karen Wilson starts with the voice of leadership and Dr. Karen speaks leadership. And today we're talking about lessons and how to learn from failure. And I will be citing the research work of Dr. Amy Edmondson, who was recently again a speaker at the American Psychological Association annual convention. And she's talking about concepts from her September 2023 book, The Right Kind of Wrong, Learning to Fail Well. Let's talk a little bit about the context of today's business environment and why this information is so important. We are in a season and a time in today's workplace where complexity rules the day, the speed of change is very high, and innovation is necessary and important. And you won't innovate as an organization unless you have a good tolerance for failure and for mistakes and from the learning that can occur from these failures and these mistakes. So one of the things that Dr. Amy Edmondson is well known for, and we've talked about this in the past, is the whole concept of psychological safety. And I want to mention that somewhat because it's also necessary when you consider creating a culture that has a high tolerance for failure. When we talk about psychological safety, it's a belief that your context, your working environment is safe for you to take interpersonal risks. That means that you can speak up and others won't reject you for what you say. So you can bring up alternative perspectives, ideas, questions, concerns, and that which others don't see and still live to see another day when you do it. Because in an organization that understands the value of different perspectives and particularly understands the value of mistakes, they want to see what you're seeing so they can learn from it and prevent the preventable mistakes. Now, speaking up is never easy, even in an environment where it's welcome and where it's valued and where people are saying, this is how we live. This is what we do around here. So imagine what it's like if speaking up is not welcomed at all. It's really a problem. So we want to be in a situation where innovation matters so much that we are willing to make the mistakes necessary to get to the innovation. And the reason we want to embrace failure is because of its value in discoveries that we come to because of the failures and the learning that we get to as well. Thomas Edison is quoted as saying, I haven't failed. I've found 10,000 ways that won't work. And that's a good way to think about failure is you've discovered 10,000 ways, you've tested them. These are not the way that works and that leads you into a more productive path of what might work. So one way to consider this whole thing is, is to think about conducting experiments every day 
that will make you better in the workplace. So we want to understand then the right kind of wrong. First of all, there's the concept that failure is not always bad and it's also not always good. Sometimes the preventable failures are things we really ought to work to eradicate. Nevertheless, failure is sometimes inevitable and sometimes good. And what we want to embrace are the lessons that we can learn from failure. Safe cultures where people can speak up about anything and where mistakes are welcome. A lot of times business people are afraid of these cultures because they think that if there's a high tolerance for failure, people won't have high standards and they'll just do anything they want to do and not care about the results. However, the opposite is really true. When you have a safe culture, those cultures usually have high standards of performance. They raise issues early, get them resolved quickly, and therefore they, in in the end, have less catastrophic mistakes because they're raising the small mistakes early and dealing with them before they become disasters. Now, the opposite of a culture of psychological safety is often one that we call a culture of blame. And I find in my consulting work, when I am in an organization that has a blame culture, what people do is they hide their mistakes. They don't raise up what's going wrong because they don't want to be blamed. They don't want to be under that microscope and then end up having an emotionally difficult and upsetting day. So you want to create a culture where people can raise the issues. The issues are addressed without pointing the finger and blaming the person. Once you start blaming people, then people get silent, they stop talking, and mistakes are not surfaced. So we really want to understand that the blame culture is not helpful. Now, there are times when there are mistakes that are a deviation, let's say, from prescribed process or practice that has a real strong track record of working very well. And those are the kinds of mistakes you want to prevent because you already know what works and it works almost foolproof. So if you deviate from that, that would become a mistake or an error that is unnecessary or that's preventable. You can also have mistakes because of inattention where you are inadvertently deviating from the specifications, not doing it on purpose. And sometimes this happens when people get really tired in a workplace. I think about medical environments, especially when you're doing long shifts, 12 hours or more. And particularly in our current context, where a lot of good professionals were lost during the pandemic. They didn't stay. They didn't come back to medicine. And so there are critical shortages in some areas. And if people are working really hard, sometimes they're tired and the inattention is due to overwork and exhaustion. Another thing that can happen is some people just don't have the ability to do what they're called in to do. I know recently I've had a lot of people in my personal life to go in for routine surgeries, surgeries that are basically foolproof. People don't have problems for these kinds of surgeries. There's a long history of knowing how to do them well, and they're either dying on the surgery table and or having some serious and significant impacts that jeopardized their future health condition because something went wrong in the surgery, which typically wouldn't go wrong 
with a surgery that is so commonplace and has the necessary protocols and directions already in place. So we find that those are some of the reasons for mistakes. There's a whole litany of reasons that Dr. Amy Edmondson gives for mistakes. And I'll say just between these three I mentioned at the top, you go all the way down to what she refers to as exploratory testing. And here's where you purposefully conduct an experiment with the purpose of expanding your knowledge and investigating a possibility that could be useful. However, it could also lead to an undesired and negative result. And we'll talk more about those kinds of experiments that you can conduct and that happen. Now, in terms of the kinds of mistakes that are made that are preventable and maybe might be even blameworthy because someone really did deviate from an existing protocol and not for any reason like exhaustion or, you know, overwork and things of that sort. They may purposefully deviate for the protocol for whatever reason. Those kinds of mistakes are relatively rare in the workplace. They take up about two to five percent of all failures is what Amy Edmondson's research has uncovered. However, the way they're treated in organizations all of these mistakes and errors to the tune of 70 to 90% are treated as though they're blameworthy, even though only 2 to 5% really are blameworthy. So if you do that, you treat all mistakes in this monolithic way, then you're losing the lessons of those errors. And even if you have after-action reviews, even if you do what you call post-mortems, the finger gets pointed, people get blamed, nobody wants to show up at these meetings, and they hide information, observations, and results, and you don't get the learning that you could get from the experiences. So what Dr. Edmondson talks about also is what she calls three categories of mistakes. Preventable, which we've been talking about somewhat. Complexity mistakes, the conditions under which you're operating in are very complex. And then the intelligent mistakes, which have great value for business and for life. In the case of those preventable errors that take place in a predictable operations environment, again, like that routine surgery that I mentioned earlier that can go awry, the way you deal with these kinds of preventable errors in predictable environments, which we call the bad failures, is that you want to increase training in those scenarios so that people know what it is that they're supposed to do and how to make that work. And you also want to increase the ability to stop the action in whatever it is for even the smallest errors, to take a look at them and to resolve them. And the reason you do this is because errors that are small usually affect other areas and cause additional errors. And then in combination, that's what leads to disaster. So she talks about the fact that the Toyota company has an assembly line approach where if you see anything that deviates and doesn't look normal, and remember assembly line, that's predictable also, you pull this cord that's called an andon cord that keeps, that stops the action. If you can fix it within a minute, then you fix it and you keep going on. If you can't see what's going on, you can't fix it, then you halt that assembly line. You stop the action, even if 
you are losing profits at the time because what they know is that if you remedy the issue while it's small, it doesn't lead to those big, huge disasters down the line that affects more product rather than just a small amount or small number of things. The other thing that's helpful when you're dealing with the preventable errors, the bad failures, is to use checklists. And if you think about airline crews, they have checklists that they go down, even though they're very experienced and they've been flying many flights and airplanes and so on, they follow the checklist to make sure they haven't omitted anything so that they won't be in a situation where, for example, an airplane crashed because they did not have the de-icing component activated on the plane. Now, if you go down the checklist, you would come to that item and be able to engage it. So the checklists are very important. So checklist training and then stopping the action to understand what's going on, make corrections, and then continue the journey forward and the assembly line. Now, sometimes there are unavoidable failures that happen in complex environments and in complex systems. And complex systems are ones where there's so much happening at once and the variables may combine in unique ways that you've never seen before, can't be anticipated that much in advance, And so you don't really know what's coming your way or what to do because you've never been there before. You've never seen it. This applies even in business, let's say, to a fast-growing company that's maybe a startup operation. If you take a look at a recent podcast where I'm interviewing Brian Smith, who was the founder of Ugg Boots, he takes us then on his entrepreneurial journey as he's learning along the way. He's failing, he's making mistakes, and he's improving what he does the next time so that ultimately he takes the business to the millions and then sets it up to also be successful in the billions. So that's a case where you can't know everything in advance that you're going to run into, and therefore you do the best you can You learn quickly, and then you move on to the next better way to do something. I also remember that when I was active duty in the military, in our military training, we did a lot of simulations that were designed to simulate battlefield conditions and where we had to take care of people who were wounded in combat. And the intention was not to make it easy. We had scenarios where there were lots of people injured on the battlefield. You had to triage those patients and decide who you can treat right away, who you can send back to the rear for treatment, who you really are going to be able to save under those battlefield conditions. That person is going to die. And therefore, you have to invest your energy and resources in those who you can get to recover. You also, in these simulations, are dealing with enemy fire that's still happening. So you're under fire. You may undergo a gas attack. You have to put on MOP4, which is the attire that you wear when you're having a gas attack. And those are very complicated conditions. And that gear is very hot. And what if you're fighting in the desert somewhere? Very difficult scenarios. And so when you practice under these conditions, it increases the likelihood that you develop the skill that's necessary for the real world conditions, even though nothing is exactly like the real world conditions. Still, you have some simulation and practice from that military training for these unpredictable and complex 
scenarios and environments. So then we get to the notion of the intelligent failures. These are the failures that are at what we call the frontier. Those things that you do on purpose, and you do them on purpose because you want to find out what can happen, what is possible. So you're almost like stress testing the system, if you will. So you're promoting this kind of experimentation. You're creating failure, if you will. And so this failure is being on the leading edge of your industry and business and what it is that you're trying to do. This is the failure that provides valuable information. And with that information, you want to get it before the competition does so you can use it to improve your product and or service. And it means that the pilot programs that you implement You want those to produce information about what doesn't work. This is how you want to do those intelligent pilots or studies. So one of the things that Amy Edmondson talked about, she gave an example of a story from the telecom industry back when high-speed internet was just starting. People were moving from dial-up and they were experimenting with the DSL technology at the time. And this particular company, one of the baby bells, really believed that what they planned to do and wanted to do was great and could go to market right away and that people would benefit. Now, the operations people did not feel that they were ready for that type of rollout at the time. The marketing people, on the other hand, thought, oh, yeah, we're ready for this. We need to do this and let's let's go like yesterday. So what happened is they created a pilot study in order to demonstrate what the project could do. Now, there were some mistakes in how they set up the pilot program. They set up the pilot program in a suburban area where people were very educated. They had the newest and latest technology. They were tech savvy themselves. And these people loved the new technology. They did well with it. And they were able to do some troubleshooting on their own. So with this pilot program, the organization went to the larger organization and said, see, this is working. We can just go ahead and roll it out in a major way. And that's going to be to our advantage. Now, what they should have done was say, okay, it works under these conditions, which were more ideal. So just like the battlefield simulations I mentioned earlier, they should have taken it to a more typical market for them and say, will this work in an environment where the people are less tech savvy and where there's not necessarily a lot of help from the company? Will they succeed? Will they succeed on older equipment? However, this pilot study was not designed to stress test. It was designed to prove that the concept would work. And so they created ideal conditions. And as a result, the company went out, rolled this out in a large scale way in an urban environment where people had old computers, were not tech savvy, did not have the tech support from the company, and it failed miserably. So when you're doing intelligent failure and you're at the frontier, yes to the pilot studies, and you want to do them a little differently than what happened in this telecom example. So let me describe some of the points that Amy Edmondson makes about what intelligent study includes, 
and what it looks like and what are the criteria so that you know that you're on track when you're doing an intelligent kind of a failure study. First of all, you want to pursue something in the business that's important, where there's a great opportunity, something significant. Now, that was true with the telecom example. It was an important and significant opportunity that they were studying. Number two, where the outcome is going to be informative, where you're going to learn something, where you've set an hypothesis about what you expect to see, and you're testing that hypothesis. Is this going to work or not work? Well, they really didn't set it up for being informative and for them to learn. They set it up to prove that it's a good idea. So therefore, they didn't put in all the stress tests that were necessary. Number three, the cost and scope is relatively small and still informative. In other words, when they tested in the suburban area, that was great because it was small enough. If it had been a failure, it was not going to sink the company or cost a lot of money. And they should have conducted additional smaller pilots before going big time. When they went big time, the cost and scope was too large and the consequences too great. Number four, key assumptions that you want to articulate in advance. In other words, you want to know enough about this new thing that you're doing that you're able to say ahead of time what you expect to see and why. Again, going back to setting some hypotheses, you want to plan some tests of those assumptions and you want to make sure that the risk of failure are understood and accepted in advance. You say, well, if this doesn't go wrong, we as a company, we stand to lose this amount of money or we stand to have this impact on our marketplace. And this company had been highly, highly rated, this telecom company, and they plummeted in terms of how their customers rated them after the big fiasco. You want to fail early and in a smaller way because you're conducting your tests in a smaller way, and then you get the kinks out before you go large and big and minimize the likelihood of failure at that level. Now, in order to operate in this kind of environment and under these kinds of conditions, you really need a type of leadership that accepts the knowledge that failure provides. In other words, we know that there are things you learn that you can only learn through failure. Therefore, the leadership is willing to experience this unavoidable process of failure, the intelligent failures at the frontiers. And therefore, they create the learning culture. And I talk very often about the learning culture, that culture that is the antidote to the blame culture, where everything that happens is an opportunity to learn and to get better. You want to get a clear understanding of what happened, not so much who done it, who did it, who to blame, but what happened and what can you learn from it, what went well, and what will you do differently the next time. You want to be in a zone where you're consistently reporting failures, eat the small ones and the large ones, and then systematically analyze them because you're searching for more opportunities to experiment. Now, for people who are in the R&D space and truly on the edge of discovery, they may want to 
fail fast and fail often and fail their way to success. And as David Kelly from IDEO, who's a very huge innovation organization that helps other organizations to conduct intelligent design so that they fail in ways that give good information, he says fail often in order to succeed sooner. Now, that philosophy works when you're in discovery, when you're on the edge of R&D and those kind of projects. However, that's not the same for the manufacturing plant where we mentioned automotive industry or certain other fields where you have refined processes that work when applied. And therefore, failure, you don't want to fail in that kind of an environment because it's not the R&D discovery kind of environment. So there are three pieces to how you respond in a failure situation. Number one is detection. First, you have to detect a failure. You have to detect it early, like we said before, before it causes a disaster. And when you detect early, this can prevent major problems like the Columbia shuttle disaster when it happened. And she analyzed this, Dr. Edmondson analyzed this in great detail. And there were small failures along the way with this foam that kept falling off and landing in different places. Had they stopped and had they investigated that foam situation and some other situations early on, it would have prevented the major disaster of the shuttle blowing up coming in to the altitude later from its exploration into space. And the same thing could be said about the Ocean Gate submersible that went down to explore the Titanic. There were small things along the way that they ignored and didn't pay attention to, which if they had paid attention to, probably would have prevented the implosion that happened in that case. So you want to detect small things early and fix them early, decreasing the stigma of failure, not being in such a hurry that you're not paying attention to these warnings and signs along the way. Secondly, you want to analyze the failure. And in analyzing, you want to stop so that you're paying attention, dig into the data, into the information that you have, and thirdly, discover the wisdom in that data. Now, this requires that you have an inquiry kind of a mindset, that you are curious about what you're doing and what's happening. It requires openness and vulnerability to see something that you don't want to see and to see the unexpected. Clearly, some patience to, to stop and work on it and tolerance for the causal ambiguity that you're going to see. You're not going to know why these things are happening. That's why you stop and analyze along the way. And you want to avoid what's called the fundamental attribution error. And that is, if it's your mistake, you blame external situations and circumstances for the failure. If it's the other guy's mistake, you blame him or her, the person for the failure. And this is how we end up not, again, uncovering failures. So in hospital context, often what happens is they'll have a lot of research that shows that thousands of deaths are occurring every year due to medical errors, and yet they may not stop to engage the analytical process to unpack why and then to reduce the numbers. There are, however, fortunately, some hospital systems that do stop and do their after-action reviews on 
the medical errors so that they can get better and reduce death in those situations. This is life and death. You want to take the time in scenarios like that. The same thing for battlefield situations. You want to be able to use the best equipment and the best leadership technology and techniques because it is life and death. And then the third thing you want to do is you also want to continue that experimentation. So you go from detection of the issue analysis of the issue, and then setting up additional experimentation, stress testing your systems so that you can see what's going on and learn from that as you continue to move forward. In all of this, you want to frame the work that you're doing accurately. The context matters, as I said, whether you're in an R&D discovery environment or the relative consistent environment of manufacturing. So Think about the environment you're in, set up the right structures and processes to learn from failures in that environment. And when you're doing those reviews, use multidisciplinary teams because they will bring different lenses to the process, to your after action reviews. So you want to move from that traditional mindset that says failure is not acceptable, the mindset that says effective performers don't fail and that managers need to prevent failure. That's not always true. So look at your circumstances and challenge it when appropriate and encourage your people to speak up when there's something that's going on that needs to be paid attention to. So in some organizations, they actually have failure parties. And in the failure parties, they're acknowledging something went wrong. The rest of the organization gets to hear the story of what happened, which, by the way, can really lead to more prevention of those same errors occurring again, because now the organization gets to hear about it. It can also decrease the time that you have between a failure occurring and people reporting it. Because if the organization is celebrating failures, they're making it safe, making it psychologically safe for people to bring these issues up. So when you fail well, you are decreasing preventable failures. You're anticipating and mitigating the complex failures that can occur. And you're promoting intelligent failure where you have a good hypothesis about ideas and you test them. So I hope that you and your organization will benefit from this wisdom from Dr. Amy Edmondson and the work that she's doing in the work about the workplace. She's at Harvard Business School. She's a professor there, and she conducts a lot of research and studies that are relevant for business, for psychological safety, and for being a fearless organization, and also now in learning from mistakes and failures and not being failure adverse as an organization. So as we're closing today's segment, I would like to read something from First Chronicles, the 28th chapter, starting with verse 20, when David is instructing his son Solomon, because Solomon will be building the temple for God. And David said to his son Solomon, be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Here are the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God. And every willing craftsman will be with you for all manner of workmanship for every kind of service. 
also the leaders and all the people will be completely at your command. So when you're in your workplace and you're doing a job that God has led you to and is leading you to and is in the mix and midst and you've sought his counsel and have prayed to God about what's going on, just know that you too can be strong. You too can be of good courage and things will align where what you need is in place, including the people with their skill sets and their abilities. So when you leave, remember to leave with God also at the helm. And that increases greatly your likelihood of success. So thank you, and I'll see you next time. Hello, it's Dr. Karen here, and I'm here to celebrate the work of the Bible League which is a global ministry that provides Bibles, ministry study materials, and through activities like Project Philip, also teaches and trains local people in how to share the word of God. So today, the president and CEO of Bible League, Yos Snoop, is with me to share a little bit more about what the Bible League is doing. Yeah, the beauty of the local church is that it is the body of Christ, and it is the Holy Spirit that is calling the, the local church to be engaged in the Great Commission. As Bible League, we just come alongside those local pastors. Last year, I met a pastor. His name is Rolando in the Amazon, and he has this great vision to reach 200 communities with the Word of God. And we're able to come alongside them and help them with Bibles and resources. Thank you so much, Yos. We are all partners together. You, the Bible League, are the hands and feet to the local people on the ground, and there are partners and donors out there who can be hands and feet to you as you also share with others. So those of you who are listening, if you want to be part of this ministry, and I invite you to be a part of it, I'm a part of it, go to BibleLeague.org, see more about the ministry, and see how you can participate and donate. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.